Welcome to the Coach's Edge podcast dedicated to teaching, sharing, and learning the game. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Steve Kramer. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this episode. And I'm joined by Jeff York, high school official. He's been a former high school basketball coach, knows the game on both sides of the sideline. In this episode, he talks about some of the challenges of officiating during the time of COVID. And then after that, we get into uh, some advice for coaches and players. And we talk about some of the common misunderstood rules of the game of basketball, some of the tough calls that officials have to make in this episode. So a special thanks to Jeff for taking the time to speak with us on the Coach's Edge podcast. And one more thing before we get to the show, we're continuing to build out our summer basketball camp schedule. We have camps on the schedule in Michigan, Ohio, South Carolina. We have some weeks of the summer left. So if you're interested in bringing one of our basketball camps to you, you can reach out, contact at KramerBasketball.com. Also know, we're going to be opening up the Coach's Edge membership for new members at the end of March through mid-April. That'd be a great opportunity if you're curious about everything that we offer with the Coach's Edge, how we serve our coaches from watching their game film, uh, giving them discounts when we come and host a basketball camp at their location, to giving them what's brand new is free access to the Kramer Basketball Training app. And not just the coach access, their entire varsity team gets access to the Kramer Basketball Training app as long as their Coach's Edge membership is active. This is a huge, huge boost to all the coaches that we serve, especially as many are heading into the off season and looking at how they can develop their players throughout the course of the year. All right, thanks for listening. Let's get to the show. I'd like to welcome Jeff York to the Coach's Edge podcast. Jeff, thanks for taking the time to be on the show. Sure, happy to be here and talk with you a little bit. I'm looking forward to talking about the challenge of officiating during the time of COVID. It sounds like a sounds like a bad movie. And then uh, I would uh, talk about some of the specifics of officiating the game. Uh, we've had a handful of uh, episodes regarding officiating on on the Coach's Edge podcast. They've all been, you know big lessons. We've had great feedback on it. And you have a ton of experience from the officiating side, as well as the coaching side of things, uh, which gives you a unique perspective. So before we get started, would you share with us a little bit of your background? Sure. Um, I started what I'll call informal basketball right out of high school, um, both officiating and coaching. Um, I was 18. I started coaching freshman basketball. And at that time in Michigan, Boys and girls basketball are different seasons. So I was refereeing girls basketball in the fall and coaching boys basketball in the winter. And since that time, um, that was in 1988, I have bounced in and out of coaching and officiating both, just kind of depending on what's going on in my life. Um, this year, I'm doing a little bit of both. I'm not coaching really. I'm uh, being a parent watching and on off nights, I'm officiating pretty much every night. So um, officiated at all levels junior high through varsity. And it's certainly been an interesting time this year, just trying to trying to help out and get games covered and do the best I can do to make games possible for kids. You have your hands full with uh, two two kids currently playing, one uh, playing at the college level, one at the high school level, officiating 
there's a lot there's a lot to juggle and handle and there's also a pandemic going on so <laughs> share with us some of the difficulties of what goes into officiating because we've heard it many times from you know some of the extra things that players and coaches have had to struggle with but I'm sure officiating is no different what have been some of the challenges for you um, well, the first most obvious thing has been the mask issue and officiating. Um, when as we were getting our season started in Michigan, and then it was off, and then it was on again, until the day before they first allow games, officials were not going to have to worry about players or coaches wearing masks. The um, day before the first game, we got another memo from our athletic association saying, now officials, you get to help take care of the mask. Um, officials already hate dealing with uniforms as far as, you know, what arm sleeve can you wear? What headband can you wear? Uh, we don't like being the uniform police. Now we have this whole mask issue, which seems simple because it's like a uniform, but it's not because it's such a divisive issue. So suddenly that was thrown on officials and then how you handle that. So that's, that's been a big deal. Um, the other thing is really just change of schedules. Um, I, I feel horrible for our signers. Um, they get games changed by the moment. Um, at three o'clock today, I was open tomorrow night. At three thirty, I was given a game at one high school, and by three forty, that game got canceled because one of the teams come down with COVID and ended their season. And by four thirty, I was given a game somewhere else. So it's just, um, it's really, it's really a fluid time. And now we're towards the end of the season where a lot of officials have worked double headers three and four times a week. Kids and coaches have played in three three games a week, sometimes three and five days. Um, normally you're pretty excited about the tournament right now. This year it's tournament time, plus people are pretty burnt out. You know, I, I heard, I don't know how many times about, well, kids can play three games a day in club ball. So it's not a problem in high school. Well, it is a problem in high school because their stress is different and you play club, these kids that play club ball, they're dividing up amongst 10 or 11 players. Well, suddenly you're playing in a varsity basketball game. You might only be playing seven guys. And it's, I think that's taken its toll and stress on everybody too. So we've moved beyond being excited about being able to play. And now just a lot of people are fatigued. So um, we're glad they're playing. It's just been a unique, a unique, unique year. And Michigan is one of the only states that I know that require their players to wear a mask during a game. So, I mean, you're wearing a mask as other officials are throughout the nation while you're officiating, but you're getting a feeling of what it's like running up and down. And I've done some workouts to get a feel of what that is like. And it is a, a different ball game. There's different types of masks that, that you can wear that may make things a little bit easier, but can you talk about that challenge as well? Um, yeah. Well, on the official side of it, um, our running is a little bit different and it kind of depends sure. on the style of game, but um, it does get to you, especially if I change directions three or four times, like fairly quickly, then I'll notice it. Um, what I'm noticing with the players is they're usually good for about two, two and a half minutes. And then you can see it, um, it starts to get to them. And then asking my younger son, who's in high school, his, he says about two and a half, three minutes straight, and he can really notice it. So one of the things I think we've evolved with officiating wise, at least in my games, we've talked about, um, we don't call timeouts to give breaks, but like if there's a dead ball or like free throws, we usually give them a little bit extra time than we normally would and say, hey, 
don't pull your mask down, just pull it away from you and take a couple extra breaths and get a good chance to get a breather. So we're trying to help manage it that way. So it's good for the kids and good for us. Um, so it's been an interesting change. It's one of those things that we hope we don't have to deal with next year, but it's not going to go away before the end of the season. Yeah, no kidding. And the postseason is right around the corner. Um, can you talk about just a few examples as, you know, we have listeners from around the, the country. Many basketball seasons have ended in other states around the, the nation. But what are some challenges that have happened with team gets gets COVID and then all of a sudden it's, you know, districts over? What are some of the things that you know some teams have had to, to go through at the end of the season? Um, well, like today, there was a, I'll call a fairly prominent class A high school, our largest class in Michigan. Their girls team got, they had a girl test positive today. So in general, it's a little bit different county by county in Michigan. That's a 10 day quarantine for everybody on their team. So 10 days takes them into next week. Their state tournament starts next week. They don't get to play in the state tournament. So that group of kids, let's say you're a senior this year, didn't get to play in districts or junior or their state tournament, their junior or their senior year. So it's pretty devastating. Yeah, that is, um, that's tough. And, you know, there's all, then you get into the political side of things or people's personal side of things. And um, I think people man are managing it well. It's just, it's just not an easy situation. Mm -hmm. um, my son's team plays districts next week. They drew a team that's only played three games because they missed some games because of COVID. They chose not to make any up towards the end of the season because they didn't want to expose somebody else. So um, most teams, I think, have played 10 to 14 games. They've played three. Um, I think most teams have probably lost at least one game, if not three or four along the way. Um, but then they try to make them up. I know Saturday there was a big game in our area on Saturday. And on Friday night is when the coaches decided, hey, let's play this tomorrow because they each had an open date. They wanted to get a good game in before the state tournament. So there's a lot of games that are put together within 24 hours notice, um, which also makes it difficult because fans are limited. Um, depending on where you're at, it's usually two spectators per player. Sometimes it's four in basketball. So that's been a little interesting things for the schools to have to deal with too. Yeah, no doubt about it. On the official what? side of that, before the season started, we were told we were going to have to drive together as a crew, arrive together in one car, walk in together dressed. Um, you wouldn't be given a locker room, bring your own water. Um, that changed before we started, but there's still a lot of those kind of extra precautions that are out there. So it's been interesting on the official side too. Well, that's a, what I was going to ask you next is, what is a day in the life as far as how you're preparing and going about the, the whole game and being scheduled? You know, just kind of real quickly before we get into some of the, the details that I really want to revisit for coaches and players and whoever might be listening as far as some of the, the rules of the game. What's a day in a life like of an official right now? Um, it's really more than a day most of the time, unless you get one of these games that's a day before. Um, I have a game Wednesday. I'll use that as an example. I had a, I'm the lead official that game. I had to contact my partners to make sure they're still confirmed for the game. We did this on Friday. 
Um, and this year's a little bit different. We usually just confirm that we're working and we get a hold of the school and say, hey, we're gonna arrive about this time, um, just to let you know. This year we ask questions like, hey, we're gonna come dressed or we're not gonna come dressed. We make sure you have a locker room for us. And we tell them whether we wanna handle the ball or not. Cause there are some officials crews that have the option of not touching the ball at all. Um, so if I had not been in any of those games, but if I was with a crew or a partner that did not wanna to touch the ball as a crew, we're not gonna to touch the ball. I wanna let the coaches know that in advance because it's a big impact on their game. You know, most, I think most directly at the free throw line, it's different when officials not handing you the ball, <laughs> you know, the, the about the free throw line and you kind of blow a whistle and say, okay, you can go ahead and shoot it now. Well, that's completely different than any rhythm that any shooters ever had shooting free throws in their life. So that, but that player just gets the ball, though. goes to the free throw line and the ref tells them when they can shoot it. Is that how it works? Yeah. They kind of like, they kind of like blow a little whistle like a quick little tweet and say, go ahead. And then their 10 seconds to shoot, it starts and the referee backs off and they go instead of being bounced to them. And, mm-hmm. you, know, and you know, as a player, shooter, coach, uh, rhythm's a big thing when it comes to that. Um, but we now, so at least my crews, we will tell a school before we get there, hey, we're not going to handle the ball. So they can prepare. And then on game days, um, we get there at a certain time. We usually go in about the beginning of the third quarter before, in the game ahead of us, if it's a varsity game, we have a pregame where we talk about what we want to emphasize. We talk about some mechanics things. If anybody's had that team before, we talk about things, styles that they like to play. You know, are they up tempo? Are they zone? Are they man? Do they press? Um, and just anything we should know about. Do they have some high flyers? If it's a guy's game, we have to talk about dunking and stuff like that. This year, we have to talk about how we're going to handle a mass. Um, you know, um, most crews I've been with are really good about, hey, kids, pull up your mask. I'm almost every dead ball, we're just saying, hey, keep your mask up, help us with your mask. And kids have been pretty good about that. But that's part of what we talk about before the game now, too. As well as if anything goofy happens in the game, we talk about how we want to address that. You know, if there's a technical file, we get together. If there's a strange play, we get together. Um, but COVID's added a couple of things. We don't have a jump ball anymore. That's been a little bit different. Um, the first two games I saw this year were both double overtime games. It, it's weird seeing double overtime games and there's no jump balls because normally there would have been three. So, you know, those are all things you got to talk about in advance. So um, that's the pregame at halftime. We usually talk about what we saw in the first half. Do we have any issues? Do we have any concerns? Um, we talk about if we have concerns from a bench side about how a coach might be talking, or maybe they have a legitimate point that we should consider as we go back out. So we have a quick little talk about that and just get a break. And then we go do the second half and finish the game. And a lot of times have a debrief after that and kind of starts over the next day. Maybe you mentioned it already, but what's the biggest surprise that you didn't encounter as you knew you're going to be officiating and we're going to have all these COVID protocols to deal with during the season? I can't say that I'm surprised by anything. Um, and some of this is because I work in the schools. So the entire, almost exactly for a year now, everything is a day by day, what's gonna change and what's gonna hit us now. Um, I would, I am a little disappointed and I've been faulty of this at one game. Um, this excitement, we're just glad the kids play um, has turned into, as the season's gone on, parents have got tired. 
And I think parents are getting grumblier in the stands and with less people there, you hear them. Mm-hmm. So they stand. So I guess that's been a little bit different. I don't know how much for the most part, the officials have to do with that as much as administration. Um, but that's been a little bit of a surprise and maybe that'll end here as we get to the tournament next week and people can get back on um, solid ground. But it's, that's probably been the, the thing that jumped at me the most I thought would be better and it hasn't been as good as I thought it would be this year. No, that's a, that's a great point. If there's, you know, 20 or 50 people in the gym, those handful of parents or whoever it is that are saying certain things, you're going to be able to hear those things compared to them just being drowned out by hundreds or a thousand fans or whatever the, the number is. I didn't think and there's that. no, that's, that's big. And there's not bands there. There's not yeah. cheerleaders there. So the environment's just completely different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Let's transition to a little bit more of the game of basketball. I think this would be a great review on, as well as I think some, some new information for a lot of our listeners. And let's get into maybe the biggest one. What do you feel is the most commonly misunderstood rule as you're officiating games? Um, I go through a couple of them. Um, one that jumps out all the time is backcourt violations. Um, over and back, most people call them. You know, the, what people don't understand is when you're bringing the ball up the floor from the backcourt, you got 10 seconds to get across half court. That getting across half court means both feet and your ball have to be over. So if a player steps over with one foot and comes back, it's not a backcourt violation. But everybody will scream it and go crazy. Um, that's one of them. Um, there's this fallacy of over the back on rebounds, you know, a guy jumps up and everybody starts screaming over the back. There's no such thing as that. There's, you might push somebody in the back, but plenty of times um, somebody, especially uh, more athletic teams, they can just jump higher than somebody else and get a ball and not touch them. It looks like they went over them. So that's a misunderstood one. But as the game's evolving, um, the traveling rules, and I know you've talked about this on other episodes of this is probably getting more and more difficult, more and more misunderstood. I know growing up, it was always, Hey, you get two steps. You you go to layup, you get two steps. If it's not a layup, you get less than less than two. And that's kind of what I grew up knowing. And it really has nothing to do with the amount of steps you have. It has a hundred percent to do with your pivot foot and when you ended your dribble and what your pivot foot is and when you lose the right to use your pivot foot. And that's got a lot more difficult with, um, what people are calling Euro steps coming in, um, side steps, pullback crossovers. Um, that's getting a lot more difficult. And it's, it's hard for officials too, because it moves, you know, pretty quickly. So I, I think that's probably transitioned into the most difficult misunderstood thing, because if it looks goofy, people are yelling, they want something called. Could you give an example of, let's just use a Euro step for example, because everybody's familiar with, with that. And it's becoming more common at even the younger levels. Can you give an example of a player performing a Euro step and how they might think it's legal, but it was actually a travel and what they would need to do to make sure that was a legal move? Okay. I'll go back to the start of when a dribble ends and a dribble really ends when you pick up the ball and you've established, usually it's because you've established a pivot foot. You've either ended a dribble and pick up the ball with both feet on the ground or with only one foot on the ground. 
And if it's with one foot on the ground, that one is your pivot foot. If that one gets back to the ground, your pivot foot before you release the ball, it's gonna be a travel. If you start off and you pick up your dribble and you have both feet on the ground when you pick up your dribble, now you can establish either one as a pivot foot. And then once you've established your pivot foot until that one gets back to the ground, you're okay. So if you shoot it, you pass it, you do something else with it before that pivot foot gets back to the ground, you're okay. Um, the timing part of it gets tough with the Euro step and with a couple other moves because it gets to be a, when does your dribble end? And when um, a lot of people, especially in coaches world call it the gather. You know, when, when you pick it up, I mean, is your dribble ending kind of when you're pulling the ball in or is it ending when you pick it up with two hands and make your move? And it's really kind of when the ball stops in a hand or both hands. Or when your hand goes underneath the ball, right? Yep, because if your hand goes underneath the ball, the ball is stopped. You yep. can say the ball's still moving. Right. Uh, but shoot, when we were growing up, um, if your hand was on the side of the ball, it was probably going to be a carry and the dribble stopped. Well, that's the least of our problems now. It's, it's <laughs> underneath the ball and stopped because, it, because people are so good and so quick with it. You know, it, it's, that's probably the most difficult, you know, part of that. And I've talked with both my sons. One has, my younger son is probably a lot better handling the ball than the other. So we have a lot of discussions about these moves. My older one probably isn't as quick handling the ball, but he has to guard people like that. So he has to cerebrally know what's going to be a travel and what isn't. Um, but that's probably the toughest thing is when that dribble ends and what establishes your pivot foot. So if a player is driving to the basket and they end their dribble with both feet are off the ground, now they could cover ground because they've waited to end their dribble until both feet are off the ground. So let's say I'm driving at my defender and they're, you know, we're on a fast break and they're standing, you know, in front of the rim. And as I'm taking my last dribble at the defender, that basketball is coming up and both feet are in the, in the air right now. So now when I end my dribble, because I don't have either foot in the air, let's say I, my last step was with my left foot, but now that foot is off the ground. Then I end my dribble. That's when I can go right foot, Euro step to my left foot. And then it's legal. It's not a travel. Did I explain that clearly enough? Yeah, I, I think so. So your gather was really in the air. My gather was in the air, yeah. And you have not established a pivot foot yet because you haven't landed. Right. So yes. So you gather in the air, If he, then if he lands on his right, and I'll call it Euro to the left, he's okay as long as he gets rid of the ball before the that original pivot foot lands again. Sure. So that's, uh, no, that's, that's good. And that's, I'm just trying to make sure that when I'm teaching my players personally, of you know some of the easy ways to say hey you want to make sure you don't travel just do it this way you know and there might be another way to do it that's legal as well but we want to make it super simple if you if you wait to end your dribble until because i think that's one of the hard things about officiating too is players you know compared to taking right foot step left foot step now good players are starting to somewhat jump and they may be jumping in a dribble. They may be jumping into a pickup for a Euro step, for example. And so 
being able to utilize the fact that I can take both feet off the ground and my dribble and then get boom, right foot, left foot. It could be a big advantage for a player and they could essentially cover more ground, I think, doing it legally. I, I would agree with that. Now, I also would say um, I think it's good for a player to be a student of the game and know how the game's being called. Normally, we've talked about that. Are, how much do the officials let go before they call a foul? You are going to have some games where officials probably call that travel a lot quicker because either they're not versed in the rule, um, the officials' ranks are thinner, so if it looks goofy, they're going to call a travel. Um, I know when I'm on the coaching side of things or working with my kids, I want them, I try to be as conservative as possible. No, you're going to be safe if you make the move this way. You might be able to get away with it if you do it this way. And whether it's legal or not, you have to just adjust to the way the official calls that game. Mm -hmm. I had a kid two weeks ago. This is no lie. Going back to the concept of you get two steps going in for a layup. I had a kid take off, land on his right foot, hop in the air, jump off his right foot again and shoot a layup. So he went right foot, right foot, layup, and I called the travel. His response to me was that was a Euro step and he gets two steps. So um, you really have to be versed on knowing what you're doing. I kind of understood what the kid was saying because he thought he got two steps, but he was really off his pivot foot twice. Um, but being a student in the game and just knowing how the officials are calling it, it's the same thing with carry. There's, there's officials I work with that will go back old school. And I mean, I'm talking class A basketball games, boys games, they will call 12 carries a game. So players get frustrated. Well, you better know the guy's going to call it because you just have to adjust to it. Whether it's right, wrong, whether you believe in it, that's probably a good thing for the players and coaches to figure out. This is the way they're calling the game today. I love that. And as, as my grandpa always told me, he's like, Hey, did they call it? You're like, yeah. Then it was a foul. Did they not yeah. call it? No. Then it was clean. Keep going. You know, it, you know, it really is that that simple sometimes. Um, how you've touched on a little bit, how has officiating changed over the past even 10 years? Because I mean, I feel like there's been some big changes even in just 10 years' time. I think the game's a lot more physical. And I, I think it's more physical because players are getting more adept at handling the ball, which makes it more difficult for the defense to play. So as the offense is developing and you're giving them a little bit more, you have to give the defense a chance. So I would say 10, 15 years ago, if a, to draw an offensive foul, for example, if you weren't standing still with both feet on the ground, you were not going to get an offensive foul call 98% of the time. Now, I think it's much more likely if you establish legal guarding position and then you move kind of wall up and stay in front of them, you can get that call where you wouldn't have a long time ago, or it's a no call. There's plenty, I, I think there's a lot more no calls than were before because, okay, the offensive player did this, the defensive player did this, it kind of canceled itself out, yeah. unless it's really bad. So I don't think that would have happened 15 years ago, mm -hmm. right? or I don't think it happened 15 years ago. I'm partial um, to the no call in a lot of those situations from just a, a fan perspective. <laughs> well, and, and the reality is officials, coaches, players, they like flow. Right. And if you call yeah. nine, yeah. there's no flow. Um, so that's a delicate balance too. Um, the flow of the game is a big deal. Hand checking has changed a lot. 
It used to be if you put your hand on a player when you're dribbling the ball, it's going to be a foul. Now the rule kind of is if you're guarding the ball handler and you put two hands on them, it should be a foul right away. If you put one hand on them and kind of touch them like a stove and take it back off, it's okay. That, that wasn't that way 10 or 12 years ago. You know, in the post, he usually couldn't touch anybody. Now it's especially college basketball, but it is in high school more and more. You know, you can push somebody out with your knee before they get the ball. You can kind of put your arm bent in the middle of their back and usually get away with it. If you extend your arm, it's going to be a problem. And I, I think before, if you even tried to push a player out of their spot when they were trying to post up, it was the foul was called a lot quicker, right? Um, I think that's a bigger change over the last 10 or 12 years too. No, those are some great, great points. Uh, what's the best way for a coach to handle a questionable call when they're speaking to you? Well, first of all, I would say, and this comes from experience of doing it wrong a whole long time. Um, you have to find a way to get the official's attention, get them near you and make it a conversation, not a direct, you blew that call. The fouls are eight to one. You need to watch this. It's gotta be more, hey, what can my player do to, to make that a charge? Or did my player just not quite get there in time? It's more a question and not a scream at a coach with the, or at an official with a, with a question. Um, I, I think that's a, just a personal people skill, best way to handle things. I also think it helps if you're not asking a question every other time down the floor. You know, if, you, if you're saying something every time down the floor, like, oh, that's a foul, that's a foul, get them off their, get their hands off them every time down the floor, and officials either going to stop listening to anything you say or just get frustrated. And I think a lot of times it's even subconsciously, you're not going to get a break at all. But if you pick your spots and then every once in a while something comes up, I think the officials are a lot more likely to listen to you. And they're a lot more likely to ask themselves, boy, maybe I missed that call. That guy never says anything. I've had him three times in two years and he never says anything. And he got kind of upset with that. It's very possible I missed it. You know, so if you pick your spots and then you present it, in a respectful manner, it usually goes pretty well. If you don't, I had a coach last week and he's a young coach who I think is gonna be very good. It's halfway in the second quarter and he's saying the fouls are seven to one. What are you gonna do about it? And me being also had the coaching perspective, I wanted to say it's seven to one because you're full court pressing and you're not as talented as that team and you're following them all over the place and your team on offense is shooting a bunch of threes. That's why it's seven to one. But I couldn't say that on my side either. <laughs> I just said, hey, is there something specific? Is there something specific you want me to watch? So I asked him a question back, just tried to take the edge off and say, hey, is there you got something specific you want me to watch? And I'll try to get it. And mm -hmm. I at at a timeout, I said, you know, that's probably not the best way to present that. Um, and I think he took that the right way at the time. We didn't have any more issues with that kind of comment. So it's all in, it's like most people's skills, it's in presentation important for officials to listen to coaches too. I'm not saying it's got to be running conversations. It's not going to be rule clinics, but I think if coaches feel like the official will listen to them once in a while and just let them vent even, I think that helps the coach get in a better spot too. How long did it take you to let comments just kind of roll off your back? Now that's still a work in progress. Yeah. Um, 
to be honest with you, I, I, I don't have a good answer for that. It's gotten better over time. I try to, as I've got older, go back to reflect what I was like when I was 18 and 19 years old, coaching on the sideline. I literally thought I was Bobby Knight. I, I would scream at how I like Bobby Knight every time down the floor. Um, the culture of the community I coached in was that way. It was just kind of accepted. Um, so I, I've gotten better at that over time, um, both as a coach and as an official. Um, but there are, there are trigger points for everybody. If it's something, I don't deal well with profanity, even if it's not directly at me. I don't deal well with, hey, ref, you, that's probably going to be a trigger point. If it's normal, hey, pick a spot once in a while and just ask me something. I'm good with that because I know what it's like to be on the other side of it and just want a, a reasonable answer. And sometimes I'm, and I think this is where the coaching helps me. I think coaches just get frustrated sometimes and just want to vent and they're not even really mad at the calls. Right. And sometimes if you can take that venting a little bit and just kind of acknowledge it, kind of like sometimes they do with their assistants, I think that goes a long way with that coach official relationship too. I think that's one of the reasons why I, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast was because you've been on both sides of that sideline. You've been in the sideline as an, as an official, you've been outside the sidelines as a coach. That gives you a really unique perspective. And it goes hand in hand with this next one. As a coach or, and also as an official, what are some changes that you would like to see made in the game, if there are any? I'm not a believer in the double bonus. The double bonus I thought was put in to try to get people to stop fouling at the end of the game. And I have yet to see a game where somebody thinks they need to foul the stop a clock that they're not fouling because they're going to shoot two free throws instead of a one-on-one. -on -one. I, I think the double bonus has only rewarded poor free throw shooters. So that's the first thing off the top of my head is I, I, I have never been a fan of the double bonus. Maybe that's me being stubborn, but I have not seen anybody stop following at the end of the game. I think if anything, it prolongs the game because now they're going to shoot two free throws if they miss the first one. Um, if they want to adjust that a little bit, it, I, I would be interested to see what it would be like in high school to go to maybe five team fouls in each quarter to go to the bonus and then reset that at the end of each quarter. Um, I, I think that would be worth investigating, but the double bonus doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No, I really like the, the fouls. Um, I, I think that would it allows for that reset. I mean, there's so many games and I don't want to say so many, but there's a handful of games where a team picks up a handful of fouls early in a quarter. And then the other team spending the entire second half or first half, whatever quarter it was in the double bonus or whatever it may have been given that reset is, is huge. And I, and I wish we adopted that like many, many other programs do. I think that would be a, make the game flow much better because nobody wants to watch teams shoot free throws the whole game. So if we just reset it every quarter, we're going to get more flow throughout the course of the game. There was a foul. Okay, let's just take it out of bounds instead of running over to the free throw line, shoot a bunch of free throws. The game's going to speed up a little bit. And that's what people came to, to see. That's what the kids came to play. What are some things as you've officiated the game over the years, over decades, that allow teams to consistently put themselves at the free throw line and to consistently put the other team in foul trouble? I'm a little old school, and this gets back to me coaching as well. I like attacking the basket. I think we've gotten farther and farther away from attacking the basket. 
if you're more aggressive with the ball and put pressure on the defense, they're more likely to foul you. Three-point shot's one example, but um, I struggle as a coach, even though it's a very efficient tool, with the floaters. You know, you drive the lane, you get the eight foot away, you shoot a floater. I think there's a lot of merit in it because, you know, you're, you're facing somebody that's a lot longer than you coming at you, you get it up in the air before they get there. You're killing me. That was one of my favorite shots. Uh, and my kids love it. And it's very useful for both of my kids. And, you know, I got one guard that's a not a big guard. And I got another one that's a football player that plays a guard that needs to be six foot five. But especially with him, he's a big, strong kid. I'm in favor of getting to the basket, yeah. drawing a foul, the yep. free throw line. Yep, I agree. Um, and I think a lot of times with moves that we're doing sometimes now, we forget about, we try to create space with our moves. But if you create too much space, you get away from putting pressure on the defense and creating that context. I, I think those are the are the big things. The other frustrating part, I think it is for coaches, if you have a less skilled team or you're an undermanned team going against somebody, you can be as aggressive as you want sometimes. And the other team just better and takes the ball from you. Mm -hmm. And even though it seems like all over the place, it doesn't mean they're fouling. It just means they're better than you. But I do think to get to the foul line, get the other team in foul trouble. And the other thing that's changing is there's not, I mean, when I was first out of high school, everything was double low post or high post, low post. You know, now where it's almost lucky if you see one post in a game, you know, who shot most of your free throws before it was, your point guard because they were handling the ball at the end of the game and your post player. Now you don't even have post players. I mean, a lot of times there's not post players. So that's where a lot of the fouls are coming from too. Um, so maybe creating a system to get the ball at least inside um, to attack the basket or inside and out and get the defense scrambling where you can attack them back and get them out of position probably would get you to the free throw line more or at least more fouls call on the defense. Yeah, I would agree. And, and as the game has transitioned on the perimeter, I think that means that many players lose the ability to play solid, strong post defense. So why not take advantage of that, throw it into the post? Kids aren't used to guarding as many post players because they're used to guarding everybody outside the three-point line. That can be a big time advantage for the player with with the right game. And you know, I say the, you know, I developed the floater because I was a, uh, growing up all the way through 10th grade, I was shorter than the average height lighter than the average weight and slower than the average speed. So when I got around the basket, I had to get that thing up high and quick or I was gonna, I was gonna eat it. And I think that's what, um, from a player development standpoint, body type is underrated when it comes to finishing. So I, I, I know this is a little bit of a side, side note, but when I'm looking at certain players, say what's their body type What's their speed? What's their athleticism? What their what's their quickness? Now we can start to think about what is the finishing package that they should have down to best suit their God-given characteristics, their traits. Listen, Euro step and floater may be the two worst moves and shots for you to master in your game because it doesn't complement your style and, and your body. And they might be great moves for somebody else to have. And so I think that's important for us when we're when we're coaching to just know your personnel um, and try to help each player on more of an individual basis than, hey, this is a cool move and this is what we're going to try to work on. And if there's a move that you can practice that's going to create some contact and light to finish and get to the free throw line, you, you need to make sure that you're practicing some of those things 
as well. Last thing that I'll ask you as we finish up uh, the podcast, Coach, um, you mentioned some of the, the hand checking. So how can a defender put great pressure on the ball while minimizing the likelihood of them getting called for uh, a hand checking or a blocking foul? There's a couple things to that. First of all, it gets back to kind of what I said earlier, know how they're calling the game. Okay. Um, there are some officials that are going to let you get right up and really be handsy. And there's some that aren't going to let you do anything. Um, so I would say in general, start with this. What the rule says, if you're in a legal guarding position, you can put your hand on somebody real quick and get a hand on somebody quick and get it back off and just kind of feel them up. All right. If you push them with that hand or try to guide them somewhere, then <clears throat> that's starting to be a foul. So start with that as a starting point on defense. Hey, I, you know, what's the official going to let me get away with here? Um, the bigger, stronger guards on defense, if you let them go with two hands, the, the guard with the ball isn't going anywhere. Some officials will let that go. I, I don't. I think, that's a, I think that's an unfair advantage. Right. But personally, I don't have any problem with somebody putting their hand up and touching them and you know, just getting it back. Um, I, I, and it all starts to me with everything in the game, in every position, whether you're on the ball, with the ball in your hand, somewhere off the ball. If you look like you're under control of your body, you're going to be in better shape. So what I mean by that is you might be dribbling the ball off the floor and the defense is in no defensive position at all, legal guarding position, I should say, but they look like they're under control and you're not under control with the ball. Even subconsciously, the person not in control is probably not going to get the break on what happens. Mm -hmm. So on defense, it's the same thing. If you don't look like you're under control of your body, they're probably going to call a foul on you if there's something that has to be called. So I would say the start of it is if you can control your body, your, um, your basic balance, and you look athletic, you're more likely to get, something not called against you. If you, if you start there, mm -hmm. I, hopefully it makes sense. No, you know, makes if you, great sense. Even if you go up to block a shot, if you go up and look like a crazy man swatting it out of next week, you're much more likely to get a foul called against you than if you just go up and swap and tap at it after it's out of their hand and you look like you're an athlete going up. Right. So I, I think there's some perception, whether it's actual or not by how under control you look like when you're playing. Yeah, control offensively, defensively can go a, a really long way. And you know, I think if, if you look like you're under control, um, people subconsciously are going to give you, I think, the benefit of the doubt, even if you happen to do the exact same thing that somebody else did. You look natural, you look comfortable while you did it. Somebody else looked wild and out of control. They're more likely to, to get the short end of the stick, you know, even if it wasn't a foul in either case or, or vice versa. That's a great point. And, and that's not only physically, I think emotionally, if you look under control, you're more likely to get a break. If you look like you're losing it, you're getting frustrated because you don't think you're getting a call or just things aren't going your way. Um, I think you're less likely to get a break when you're emotionally losing control too. I, mm -hmm. So I think much as physical, I think emotional goes into that too. No, that's great. Any last piece of advice that you would give to a coach who's listening, heading into their final weeks of the season? Um, I think just remember it. it's 
all, all athletics and basketball is included in that. It's a game of people. Um, your players are going to make mistakes. Your officials are going to make mistakes. The officials have to understand they're going to make mistakes. So it's a game of, I, I think that personal um, people, people making plays and not making plays are part of the game and officials making great calls and probably blowing calls are part of the game. I, I, I hate instant replay for that reason. It's, there's a human element to whatever we do. And whether it's a coach, player, or official, there's a human element. And we, we are so much better off when we understand that about the game and understand that about each other. I, I think as we get into this very tired time of year and excitement of the tournament, it's probably the biggest piece of advice I would give everybody. This, just remember, we're all people and we all need to be there for each other, no matter what our role is in the game. That's great advice to finish the the podcast on. I mean, there's there's so much that goes into the game of basketball from the coaching side and from the the players putting in the work. Uh, but that wouldn't happen if there weren't officials out there doing what they do. And I know you've the Michigan has been very short with the amount of officials that are able to perform games. So a credit to you. Well done. Keep it up get well rested. It's going to be a fast and furious race to the end of the season. And uh, thank you very much for being on the Coach's Edge podcast. You're very welcome. Once again, a special thanks to Jeff York for taking the time to be on the Coach's Edge podcast. If you found this episode beneficial, please be sure to leave a positive rating and a review. That goes a really long way. And make sure you're subscribing. So just listen to this episode and make sure you're subscribing. That goes a long way as well. If you're interested in anything that we offer to our Coaches Edge members, or you're just curious and say, you know, I, I wanna learn more. Uh, I have some questions. I don't quite understand all the services that you provide. Again, you can reach out to me, contact at kermabasketball.com at coachesedge one on Twitter. Thanks again and get after it today.